Admitted of Us sounds like a great title for a Celine Dion album. It seems like the maximum amount of a Celine Dion album I would actually listen to. <laughs> Correct. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Who, me? Yeah, and senior writer Leah Leibowitz. Lug to the Omer, baby. I actually was looking at the new tablet redesign, the masthead, and we've all changed titles. I think Stephanie's kept her title. I used to be editor-at-large, now I'm senior editor, and I think you're now editor-at-large, Liel. I think we switched titles. We're playing I've musical I'm getting larger, Mark, so <laughs> at some point. This week, we speak with former Israeli member of the Knesset, Anat Wilf. She has a provocative and interesting new book out. We talked with her a couple weeks ago. It was a fun conversation. And we have a Gentile Jew duo. It's Mohammed Baki and Adam Zucker, who collaborated on a new film called American Muslim. So we've got the Israeli, who speaks better English than any of us do. We've got the Muslim American. We've got the Jewish American. We've got the Stephanie American interviewing them. It's it's, it's basically a coexist bumper sticker. <laughs> Stephanie Americans are very underrated minority. They have wonderful holidays. <laughs> Speaking of underrated minority, <laughs> Stephanie and I were on the weirdest, most excellent, most niche Zoom game show on Saturday night. And Liel, I think we have to catch you up on what we were doing. Before you even start, I should tell our listeners that I was receiving texts from a lot of you that were increasingly more bizarre and harder to decipher as the night went on. It was amazing. Because Mark and I were on the show. Sarah and Josh were watching the live stream, and Liel had no idea that any of this was going on. No. So there's this podcast. It's called Campfires and Color Wars. It's hosted by Micah Hart, who has been on the show. He's been on, I think, the camp episode a few years ago. Um, I've been on his podcast talking about like a traumatic camp memory. Mark, you were talking about probably your nudist camp on his of podcast <laughs> and what they're doing now both because you know everyone's stuck at home and also because you know if you have a podcast about camp these are sort of like trying times as we have no idea what's happening with camp but what they've been doing is playing this zoom jewish geography racing game where they basically have two people on in this case this was i think their third week of doing it in this case mm-hmm. it was me and mark the idea was we each had to call someone in and say do you know this person and if not can you bring someone into the zoom who might know this person if that person doesn't know the person, they have to call someone else into the Zoom who does. So it's sort of six degrees of Jewish geography, and whoever's thread gets to the person first wins exactly nothing except bragging rights. And it was dramatic. I mean, look, let's just say this. I lost. So the woman they had us searching for was a woman named Diana Speckler, and they told us she's 40 years old and from Newton, Massachusetts. Go. An hour before this all started, I started posting on my social media saying, like, both saying, watch this live stream. We're going to be doing this crazy game. But also expect maybe a text message from me asking you to join a Zoom call at 9 o'clock on a Saturday <laughs> night to help me find a stranger. The first person that came to mind was Nate Strauss, who, as you recall, was the person who recognized me on the beach in Tel Aviv. Right. And I posted right. on my Instagram, Nate, I, right. I, I ran right. into this guy, Nate Strauss, and I started getting like hundreds of messages of people being like, I know Nate, I know Nate, I know Nate, I also know Nate. He knows everyone. So I had DM'd him in advance and I had said, Nate Strauss, I'm doing Jewish geography. I cannot imagine someone who would be more helpful. You had a ringer lined up. You lined up a ringer. And right when we started, I texted him. He then like texts a bunch of people to see who, if they know someone who knows her. When I heard that she was 40 years old and from Newton, Mass, my first thought was, okay, I'm gonna go geography, literal geography. If I can find someone from Newton, Mass around that age, this will be over before it starts, right? I did think of someone, an old friend whom I've been out of touch with for 10 or 15 years, but I don't have her text number. We fell out of touch before, maybe around the time we both got cell phones. So maybe it's like 2000. And so I actually started texting people saying, 
do you have Rachel's text number? Because I have to call her. If I, I mean, I can email her, but what are the odds that she's sitting on email on a Saturday night? Actually, not, not terrible, given what we're all doing these days. So I basically started trying to find people from Newton. That failed. Not before I pulled in Sarah Fredman Ader as my third attempt at getting someone. And producer Sarah, what was your move at that point? Who did you try to get for me? I reached out to my network saying, does someone know this person? I immediately got two people. I like the idea that you have a network. Do you just mean all the oh, people? Like, when does that even mean network. you reached out to your network? <laughs> I'm a Jewish professional. I know a lot of Jews. <laughs> but like, how do you, do you have an all network list? I mean, I usually reach out to like my Wexner class uh, because they're placed in a lot of different Jewish industries. For the Gentiles, the Wexner Fellowship is a fellowship that Sarah got, a very prestigious Jewish communal leadership fellowship. It's it's not the elders of Zion. It's just sort of like young middle age of Zion. It's the young sort professionals. Young professionals. Of Zion. <laughs> Um, So I reached out and literally within three minutes, I had two people. One said, she married my cousin. And one (laughs) said, she's my closest friend. What do you need to know? In that world, you don't know if that was the person who said she married my cousin. Did she actually marry their cousin or did she just perform the wedding of their cousin? (laughs) You never know. (laughs) And meanwhile, Kevin Bacon is sitting at home being like, why is no one calling me? My move after Nate Strauss, I said, you know, I think I'm going to call in Barry Weiss because if anyone knows everyone in the Jewish community, it's her. New York Times columnist Barry Weiss. Yes. And so what happens then is I text Barry. I said, are you around? I have a very dumb question. This I had to be clear, like, this is not professional, though maybe it was. And so she's like, I'm here. And so she hops on. But she's actually in Pittsburgh at her family's house. Her sister Molly is getting married. She actually got married the day after. So they were all uh, (laughs) quarantining together. They were doing this like very intimate quarantine wedding. So this was the bachelorette party, basically. I ended up doing what I should have done at the beginning, which is I asked Alana Newhouse, our boss, who said, oh, I have Diana's email. And she emailed Diana. And then next thing we knew, Diana was on the Zoom call. It really is catnip. And everybody should be listening to the podcast, Campfires and Color Wars, and people should be going to their Facebook page and watching this. They're still working out some little kinks, I think. They would be the first to admit, but it is a really, really fun concept. And I was super chuffed to be and on the Diana Speckler, it turns out, is a writer, which is why they chose her for yep. us. And I knew her name sounded familiar, and it turns out that's why. And she just wrote this piece in the New York Times last week about how the nude selfie is now high art in quarantine. Um, so it was very funny. So it was really fun to meet her. One of those many pieces that made me think the time style section is not writing about me. So you're saying you're not taking nude selfies. I'm saying I've never nude selfied. I will come out to the audience and say that I've never nude selfied. And if I did, they would not be artistic nude selfies. I am one part relieved and one part disappointed to hear that. Sam. So Liel, I'm sorry that you like weren't <laughs> part of this. I think it was sort of like an immigrant shaming thing. I think it's because you didn't like go to camp in the way we did, even though I know you went to the JCC at Margate that one summer. Well, co-hosts, while you were biding your time with such with such trivia, with such unimportant things, I was getting down to to do God's work, really. Now, here's a quick question. Did I mention on this podcast on one or two occasions that I, I play a game called Animal Crossing? You it have has been in mentioned. fact mentioned my, my, this. That have been raised. That <laughs> has been raised. Okay. So on our delightful Facebook group, the great Garth Ebner asked a question uh, pertaining to last week's episode. He said, since um, Nick Hornby was mentioning Aruvs, and since I was, as usual, <laughs> prattling on about Animal Crossing, he asked, could you build an Aruv on Animal Crossing? And for those of you who are new to the <laughs> new to the world, Animal Crossing is a game in which you have this virtual little island, and there are nice little animals, and you could build stuff. But can you build an Aruv? Uh, my mind properly blown by this. Um, 
I went ahead and and did the work and <laughs> called. You reached out to your network, rabbi. as it were. Oh no 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 no! <laughs> I reached to one of this country's most prominent rabbinical authorities on the figure of Eruv, who, for very obvious reasons, <laughs> absolutely refuses to have his name shared. <laughs> <laughs> and then said, okay, look, I know I'm very stupid, but there's this game called Animal Crossing. <laughs> and in an incredible rabbinic manner, he was like, well, <laughs> it's on an island? I was like, correct. Do you know if the island has a continental shelf? I was like, there's no way of knowing this. Okay, next question. When we build, because we were talking about all kinds of ways to build things. He's like, well, when you, when you build, though, however, you are not technically the owner of the island, Correct. I said, no, I'm not. Well, who is the owner of the island? Asks the rabbi. I said, well, he's a, he's a greedy tanuki named Tom Nook. He's like, well, you would have to ask him permission. I was like, ah, but the app gives you permission. I was like, great, great. So next thing you know, you would have to place a virtual food item in the middle of the island to create an Eruv Chatserot. It was the most intricate <laughs> conversation about That's video games. Incredible. And, and my, my mind was like, just like blowing up and Lisa was sitting next to me on the couch trying to work, looking at me like, who are you talking to? No, did you then take this out to your network of Jewish video game nerds for whom this is now a central text forever? I I then rushed to our Facebook group and wrote a 10,000 word post. Dissertation. (laughs) Another PhD dissertation. Every step that you need to take to build a 100% kosher Eruv on your Animal Crossing Island. The first dissertation being written in uh, the New School's Joint Program in Religious Studies (laughs) and Computer Games. Correct. It's funny because this is like how whenever like Liel responds to Slack, I'm always like, wait, Liel's on Slack? It's like, (laughs) I didn't even know he was in the Facebook group. Are you listening? So yeah, you you can now get your your smicha from Nintendo. It's amazing. (laughs) Well, after that, our future discussion about the Hulu series Mrs. America uh, is not going to hold a candle. But I would still like to encourage us all. Are we all watching? Leo, you watched and- I watched. Stephanie, now you're deep into Mad Men. You could actually, this will follow nicely chronologically on the heels of Mad Men. Yeah, I think it'll dovetail nicely. I mean, look, to be honest, I'm on I'm mid-season six of Mad Men. I'm not going to start Mrs. America until I finish. The good news is I like to take down at least a few episodes a day. Um, I did a lot of like professional Zooming this weekend, so I wasn't able to be uh, as attentive to my Mad Men needs. And let us all remember that we can write off our uh, streaming subscription services on our taxes because this is actually what we do for a living. We we watch this stuff and we talk about it. <laughs> News of the Jews this week, only one only one item really rises to the level of, of Jew news this week. Uh, the great Jerry Stiller, husband of the great Ann Mira, father of the great Ben Stiller. And Amy Stiller. Come on. Also father of Amy Stiller. <laughs> He's a great man. I want to read the entry. I'm just gonna, we're just going to bid farewell by reading the entry from the newest Jewish encyclopedia on Stiller and Mira. Comedy team known for their nightclub act, albums, and appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show, which frequently dealt with their intermarriage. Stiller is Jewish. Mira was Irish Catholic. They ended their joint act in 1970 at the peak of their popularity because the onstage sparring played for laughs was affecting their relationship. Stiller starred opposite Walter Matthau in one of the greatest New York City movies ever, The Taking of Pelham 123. He had a resurgence in the 1990s as George Costanza's ranting loose screw father on Seinfeld and reprised the shtick on Kevin James's show, The King of Queens. Mira appeared in television shows throughout the 1980s, Archie Bunker's Place, ALF, and had a recurring role on Sex and the City. She showed up toward the end of The King of Queens' run and her character married Stillers on the season finale. The pair had two children, actors Amy Stiller and Ben Stiller. Jerry Stiller, 
you shall be missed. is former Israeli member of Knesset, Anat Wilf. She was a member of the Labour Party in Knesset and then the Independence Party. And she has advocated for issues of education and women's rights. Before all that, she served as an advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Peres. And now she is the co-author of The War of Return, How Western Indulgence of the Palestinian Dream Has Obstructed the Path to Peace, just out in English translation. Welcome to the show, Anat. Thank you. It's great to be here. Really great to have you. Okay, so for our listeners who have not read your book, which really is just out in English, what is it? What are you arguing in this new book? The main argument of the book is that we should take the Palestinians at their word. When they call for what they call a right of return, they are serious about it. It's not a bargaining chip. It's essential to their identity. And it means that in their vision, the only just solution is one in which there is no sovereign state for the Jewish people. And what we speak about in the book is not just the Palestinians themselves, is, of course, the Western policies that have indulged this Palestinian vision for over seven decades. Okay, so this, of course, is one of the pillars when people on the left, and you are of the left, talk about obstructions to a peaceful resolution of the conflict in the Middle East. One of the things they talk about is the settlements in the West Bank. One of the things they talk about is the treatment of people in Gaza. One of the big ones is the right of return. And my sense is this has been, and this is in the book as well, this has been an evolution from you, that you used to think that the right of return was also one of the things that Israel had to bend on if peace were going to be achieved. Can you say a little bit about how you changed your mind? Certainly. I grew up politically in the Israeli left, and I was very much of the political camp that believed in this very elegant and simple equation that Israel can hand over land, the land that it acquired as a result of the 1967 Six-Day War, and in return, it can get peace. This is the famous land for peace formula. And for a while, it seemed to be working beautifully with the Sinai Peninsula. Israel signed an agreement with Egypt for peace in return for handing over the Sinai. We thought that this was the realization of the land for peace formula. And during the 90s, there was a sense of euphoria that we are finally putting this formula to its full implementation, talking with Syria over the Golan Heights, making peace with Jordan, and discussing with the PLO, with the Palestinians, over the West Bank and Gaza. But the thing is that in 2000 and later in 2008, the Palestinians receive concrete proposals to have a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza, fully independent, capital in East Jerusalem, including the old city. And Palestinian leaders, Arafat in 2000, Abu Mazen in 2008, they walk away from that. And for many Israelis like myself who grew up believing that The issue is about land, land for peace. We hand over land, they will give us peace. The fact that Palestinians walked away from these opportunities was truly baffling. And especially when it was followed by this murderous bloodshed of the suicide bombing campaign. 
And Adi Schwartz, my co-writer and myself, what we realized is that when Palestinians say from the river to the sea, and this is manifested in their demand for return, to demand the return of five, six, seven million Arabs into Israel would mean that the Jews become a minority in an Arab state. We realized that when Palestinians say from the river to the sea, it's not a negotiating position. It's a goal. And it's the only goal, and it's one in which they have no intention of compromising. It sounds like what you're saying is that we in the West misunderstand where their emphasis is, because I will say as someone who grew up on the American left, it was definitely seen that the settlements and the military control back then of Gaza as well were the real issues, right? And then they would sort of tack on the refugee issue. But that was always seen as eminently solvable, in part because the presumption was that you could pay off a certain number of Palestinians, you could compensate them with money. If I'm not mistaken, what you're saying is actually the emphasis there is all wrong, that right of return is the thing that they think about more. Is that? Am I getting that right? That is precisely it, because we, and certainly in the West, the notion is this is a conflict about land, and all the things you mentioned are related to land, the settlements, the military occupation of the West Bank and at the time of Gaza. These are all things that are related to the question of the control of the land. And the focus was really, and this is also was true of the Israeli left, we deal with the issues of the land, we stop settlements, we remove settlements, we end the occupation, the Palestinians get a state in the land of the West Bank and Gaza, and we have peace. But what we realized is that it's exactly the opposite. For them, if the choice is between having an Arab-Palestinian state in part of the land, meaning in the West Bank and Gaza, but it means that they forgo their demand to return into the actual state of Israel. If that's the trade-off, they don't want to make it, and they prefer to forgo having an independent state in order to keep fighting for Palestine from the river to the sea. So it sounds like this book is the result of an ideological journey of your own, right? You're from the Israeli left. These aren't necessarily arguments we hear from the Israeli left. So I'm curious how your thinking has changed on this and how this these ideas are received on the left. Although this is an individual journey and also of my co-author, this is the journey of almost the entire Israeli left. It's the reason that the Israeli left has effectively collapsed because the Israeli left can no longer credibly offer Israelis the promise of peace in return for an exchange of land. Israelis don't believe that this is possible anymore. But what I seek to do in this book is very much remain in the left by saying, look, I still want peace. I still want peace based on the idea of two states for two peoples, peace based on the recognition that there are two peoples in this land, the Jewish people, the Arab Palestinians. They both have a legitimate claim to the land. Neither is a foreigner, and they both should have the right to be masters of their fate in a state of their own. But to get to that, we cannot look away from the fact that the, on the Arab Palestinian side, the demand of from the river to the sea is a full consensus. In fact, there's no one who breaks away from that. Even Palestinians who say we support two states, but then they demand return, the only two states they support is an Arab state in the West Bank and Gaza and an Arab state to replace Israel. There is not yet a Palestinian voice, not even a meager op-ed or a small NGO, to say 
enough. Let's move on from this demand to return. And the Jewish people are not foreigners in this land and they have an equal right to self-determination. So you're saying, and I know this is true to some extent, that obviously a lot of the Israeli left has moved with you, right? I mean, the, the left has moved right on questions of security and defense. But does that mean that you didn't lose any friends over this, that everyone you used to be with still agrees with you? Or are there people uh, whose shishi Tel Aviv cocktail parties you are no longer invited to? I have some new friends. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and sometimes I wonder whether my views represent the five people who I know closely or 70 or 80 percent of the Israeli public. But it is true that, broadly speaking, where I am today is not a pariah position, even in the Israeli left. I mean, there are very, very few people who really believe and argue that the reason we don't have peace is only Israel's fault. This position that only if Israel did more, that only if Israel got out of this or stopped that, then we would have peace. There is almost no one that is making that claim politically and certainly very few people who believe that. Now, what I'm trying to argue is that we actually can get to that point, but we will not get to that point if the Western world will continue to indulge the Palestinian vision of from the river to the sea. Only when that indulgence ceases can we hope to see other Palestinian voices that will recognize the legitimate Jewish claim to part of the land. And I, I want to get emotional for a second, because I very much like you grew up in the Israeli left. I had a journey of my own. Mine took me to a place that will now be very much defined as right of center. And so I know firsthand the kind of tribulations of going through these political evolutions. I really want you to stop and kind of reflect and share with us beyond the intellectual recognitions. And look, you're a PhD, your co-author is a PhD, you're both very cerebral people. One of the most appealing things about the book is that this is a very seriously well-researched and thoroughly documented book. If you love footnotes, this is definitely the read for you. That's a great blurb. <laughs> Coming from a nerd, that is, you know, intended very much in the spirit of praise. But I'm wondering if there's kind of a moment in which, you know, you're sitting somewhere in your apartment in Tel Aviv and thinking, oh my God, this is a whole new world. I mean, forget the logical conclusions and the fact that they all make sense in the process, but just kind of emotionally, is there a point that's like, look, I staked so much. I was Shimon Peres's aide. I'm a creature of the 90s. So much of my own self-being is, yes, we're thrusting toward peace. Was there an emotional moment like this? It's tough to say that it was a moment because it's definitely a process. And I think in many ways, I still refuse to let go of the idea. I've just pushed it more into the future. So in that sense, I continue to be that creature of the 90s who says, I ultimately believe that neither side is going away and we have to figure out where we live side by side because as long as any side think that the solution is kicking the other side out, we're just in an eternal conflict. So you don't like settlements and, and stuff like that? Let me put it this way. For example, a lot of people, when I give the talk in Israel and they say, how can you be a left-wing person? You speak like a right-wing person. And I speak about the fact that I still believe that ultimately we need to divide the land between two states and that some of the settlements I do not support, certainly those that are deep within the West Bank. And I get responses from people in the Likud 
who will say, but we're like you. We understand that one day we might need to divide this country or to hand over settlement, but the Palestinians will have to finally recognize that we're here to stay. So for me, it was a very interesting moment that people think of themselves as right-wing and left-wing as almost, like you said, emotional positions, but when you parse it down to the actual policies, they're literally in the same place. One of the most fascinating things that you told me is the kind of weird phenomenon in which you would go to your friends and said, hey, I just had this conversation with a Palestinian intellectual and he told me, no, really, we're never going to give this up until we get back, you know, Haifa and Yafo and, you know, all the parts that are now Israel. And then your leftist friends would say something like, oh, they don't really mean that. They're just saying that. It's just a tactic. Can you speak a little bit about this cognitive dissonance that happens in which so many people are basically not willing to take the other side at their word? This is one of the things I've struggled with. I've seen it among people on the left. I've seen it especially among European diplomats and journalists who are some of the greater financial supporters of this Palestinian vision of return. And you're right, all of them, when I tell them, look, the Palestinians, to their credit, they're not lying. They're telling you very clearly what is their vision. And the Europeans or some of the Western left, they have an attitude which I describe as neo-colonial. I've even invented a word for it, which I call Westplaning. So Westplaning is when Western journalists and diplomats or politicians on the left explain away what Palestinians have just said. Palestinians will say, we demand return, Palestine from the river to the sea. This is a holy right. We will never give up on that. And then the Westplaning is, they don't really mean that. And it's this neo-colonial attitude, like mansplaining, one which basically says, Women can't think for themselves. Palestinians can't think for themselves. So I'm going to tell you what they really mean. So our book is very much about giving the Palestinians the respect of taking them at their word. For me and Stephanie as diaspora Jews, part of your critique is that the West needs to change its outlook and we need to act differently, which will help pull the Palestinians into what you see as kind of the future and pull Israelis. They're like, okay, what can I do? For individuals, my recommendation is when interacting with Palestinians, stop indulging anything that is about Palestine from the river to the sea. When they speak of justice, ask them to explain how they envision this justice. When they speak of rights, ask them which rights Because when Westerners hear justice and rights, they think of it in a certain way. When Palestinians speak of justice and rights, they only speak of one justice, the justice which is correcting the injustice, which is the very existence of the state of Israel. And the only right they speak of is the right of return, not some general right. So I think there has to be a very clear demand that any Palestinian who wants to be perceived as speaking for peace acknowledge the equal right of the Jewish people to self-determination in their historic homeland. I think there has to be a demand for op-eds, for NGOs, for Palestinians to speak up and for Western politicians to stop funding and supporting the infrastructures that indulge this vision that Israel is actually temporary and one day could be undone. 
Uh, guys, can I break in and ask a question here? Producer Josh! It seems to me that the fundamental issue here is that Palestinians are talking about their existence in the context of being a people. And meanwhile, we as Jews are also a people, but we're talking about the state of Israel between the river and the sea as a political entity. The failure on the left seems to be finding a way of effectively communicating the peoplehood of Jews. So the issue is only a little bit with Jews, but mostly with Americans. My toughest audience are Americans, whether American Jews or American non-Jews. Americans, being Americans, do not understand the concept of the nation state. Americans do not understand that America is the exception rather than the rule, which is the reason why they often mess up foreign policy. For Americans, the notion of a nation state where Greece is for the Greeks and Slovenia is for the Slovenians and Slovakia is for the Slovaks makes no sense. They don't get it. They think of a universal civic state. I would argue that even America is only approximating this ideal and not really living it, but it is an ideal in America and pretty much nowhere else in the world. So Israel is a normal country in the rest of the world. The Jewish people are a nation and they have a nation state. And within that nation state, there are national minorities, like there are national minorities in many other nation states. But for Americans, this is a foreign concept. And as a result, they try to impose and promote the idea of a neutral civic state, which Palestinian Arabs have latched onto to appeal to Americans. And they say, let's just have a neutral state. And the thing is that there's no neutral state in the Middle East. If Israel is not the nation state of the Jewish people with an Arab national minority, it is an Arab state, period. We in Israel, we understand that it's a stark choice, either an Arab state or a Jewish state. Americans, Jews or otherwise, don't understand it in their bones. And I think that's much more the reason about speaking past each other. Look, I want to live in a John Lennon world too. No religion, no borders, all of humanity living as one. It's just that when you ask the Jews to go first, I get very suspicious. I actually oppose Japan, but that's for another time. <laughs> I oppose Belgium, but that's well known to our listeners. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there's one thing that's going on in the American left that you're not quite giving credit to, which is that I think... Certainly this, this rhetoric used to be huge, which is that there actually is a minority, a meaningful minority of people in the Arab world, a sort of secular Arab left, who of course can't speak up about their willingness to compromise because Hamas would have them executed or you know they'd be thrown to the wolves, even in the West Bank, even in Ramallah, that the social cost right now would be too great. Does that population really not exist at all? So we're seeing that in the Arab world, especially in the Gulf, you're right. We're beginning to hear different voices that are actually going to the media. They're writing op-eds, they're interviewing on TV, and they're not being beheaded. And they're saying clearly things like, why are we against Israel? And it's high time that we've ended this charade. Or you're beginning to hear those voices, especially in the Gulf. And I collect these voices because the day that those voices will be the dominant voices in the Arab world is the day we have peace. Among the Palestinians, we don't even have those voices. And you're right in the sense that to do so would require tremendous courage. 
But that's exactly my argument. If a person, a Palestinian, to say that the Jewish people have no lesser right to self-determination in the land requires insane courage, Palestinians in London are not saying it either. It's not just about living in Gaza or Ramallah. Palestinians in Boston are not saying it. So it tells you something about the fundamental ethos of the people if you don't even have minority voices who are willing to challenge them. And this is exactly the message of our book. We do a comparison to Germany and its leadership after World War II and the German refugees. And we're saying, if you want a leadership to emerge, then we'll speak to the Palestinians and tell them, enough, we're moving on. There's not going to be return. We can have some of the land, but not from the river to the sea. If we want such a leadership to emerge, right now, we're pretty much making sure it's not going to happen because we're indulging the ethos of Palestine from the river to the sea. If we want a different leadership to emerge by stopping to indulge that vision, we are at least giving it a chance. Are you hopeful at all? Yes, I am hopeful, but just on a different time frame. I think that's (laughs) (laughs) the most Jewish thing you said today. (laughs) Oh, good, good. Then that makes me even more proud. You have to bring Mashiach, right? They don't just come. You have to take action. And in many ways, the book is my deed, my action to bring that Mashiach, to create an environment where people think differently about the conflict, understand its root causes, and begin to act and speak differently in a way that makes sure that the chances of peace become better sooner rather than later. So I hope it's both the Jew and the Zionist in me speaking on this. I think we just heard a very good prime ministerial campaign speech, didn't we? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. The book is The War of Return, How Western Indulgence of the Palestinian Dream Has Obstructed the Path to Peace. It is out in English and Amazon will begin delivering books again in three months. Thank you for being our Jew of the Week. (laughs) Thank you. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. 
You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. The mailbox. A lot of great mail this week, and thank you for keeping it coming, J. Crew. Hi, Mark, Stephanie, and Liel. I just heard the letter from Katie, the listener who feels guilty for exploring Judaism because it means turning her back on Christianity and its promise of salvation. I was raised Catholic, complete with parochial school. Needing an external savior was part of why I left the church, in fact. But there's no right or wrong, and there's no one timetable. The first conversation I ever had with my rabbi about conversion was when I was seven months pregnant with my daughter. And hearing him tell me that there was no schedule, that I could make any decision in my own time, was the most freeing thing any religious figure had ever said to me. It took me about five years even to make up my mind about converting after that, and seven years to actually do it. They don't call it a conversion journey for nothing. Yours, Kate. Amen to that. And here on the Kosher Whiskey Beat, we have a letter from Nathan in Chicago. Hello, Unorthodox. Just wanted to write in about the kosher whiskey. American whiskey is generally presumed kosher. The issue is that Sazerac, which makes Buffalo Trace, is privately owned by Jews and for many years did not sell their chametz for Pesach. Shonda. This, by which he means the bottle we were talking about um, last week, this is a special run that is sold for Pesach, apparently. I'm not sure why people want that instead of whiskey made by companies not owned by Jews, but that's the background. I love that because you know how there's always a guy that you sell the chametz to on Passover, like symbolically, and then you get it right back after Passover? If Buffalo Trace sold me their chametz for Passover, <laughs> I'm never freaking giving it back. I'd be like, what? What? Who's this? New phone, who that? No whiskey back. Who's the person who dimed them out for not selling their entire chametz business for Pesach? I don't know, but his initials are J. Beam? (laughs) J. Daniels? I don't know. The vitriol of, this is a company owned by Jews who don't sell their chametz for Pesach. (laughs) Could you just imagine, though, like a person in like a white Colonel Sanders like suit being like, (laughs) well, well, here, boys, uh, room around town has it. Y'all don't sell your whiskey for Pesach. What's up with that non-chametz business? Now, would it be different if they were inside the Eruv on Animal Island or Animal Crossing? Animal Island. <laughs> I was about to say Animal Planet. I was like, no, that's not right. It's Animal not Island. Correct. Not right. Animal Crossing. Okay. Here is a brief and cheerful mail that we're very grateful for. Hello. I just want to say thank you so very much for the interview with Dr. Rachel Rosenthal. I have never once clapped out loud for an interview until today. Thank you to Stephanie for this amazing interview, Sarah. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Brava. Stephanie, you've earned the right to read the next letter. Oh my God, thank you. Dear Mark, Liel, and Stephanie, for the past year, I have had you accompany me on my weekly pre-kids awake walk. This is when I have alone time for my two kids under six, my full-time job, 
husband, and, well, general domesticating. Your wit, cohesion, and smarts, as well as your ability to sometimes tackle tough subjects with a nuanced and honest approach, creates a perfect combination, and I hope to grow old with all of you. In these times, hearing your broadcast every week, where those walks are more important than ever, is like hanging out with old friends or being wrapped in a warm blanket, as creepy as that may seem. <laughs> Warmly and fondly, Leah from Oakland, California. Leah, we return that 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 warm blanket hug. Yeah. We totally want to we're, be your we're warm the, blanket. We're like the Snuggie. <laughs> we will be the blanket to your Linus. Can I tell you something about Oppenshire Manor that none of you know that Leah made me think about? We name our blankets. So we have about five or six <laughs> different fleecy blankets. And one of them is known as soft oh blankie. One of them is known as brown blankie. One is known as blue blankie. And one is known as victory blankie because it was given to us by our neighbor, Victoria. And so Anna named it Victory Blankie. So is that like you'll all be sitting on the couch and someone will be like, can you get me soft blue blankie? That's exactly what it's like. And so Leah from Oakland, after dogs, my next favorite pet is the warm blanket. And the idea that we are your warm blanket is not creepy at all. It's fabulous. And thank you for writing. I want us to be like a weighted blanket. So we add just like a nice layer of guilt. <laughs> I, th- I think I'm probably the weighted blanket. On to a very deep cut. This is uh, from an old unorthodox debate that some longtime listeners will remember. Hi, J. Crew. I want to be clear about something. I have not written a letter to any type of broadcast since I was 10 years old and in the fifth grade at JFK Elementary School in Great Neck, New York. Stephanie, was that your elementary school? Of course it was. I'm getting very, I got to go scroll down and see who this letter is from. Nice. The thing that really inspired me to write was the whole top sheet issue. I have wondered about this very issue for many years. As a child, I had a few Jewish friends who came from homes with top sheets. It always seemed very proper to me. But I think I know the answer to this issue at last. Last year, I went to Romania for a wedding, non-Jewish wedding. We traveled around and stayed in six hotels, from the simple to the elegant. Not even one of the hotels used a top sheet. This led me to conclude that the tradition of quilts with no top sheets is of Eastern European origin. So that's it. Stay healthy and safe. Susan Rose, alumna, JFK Elementary School. Susan, uh, thank you for taking us back into the halcyon days of that debate. Yes, uh, as as newer listeners can go back and learn. What episode number was that, Josh? I don't even know how we're going to figure that out because it's not in any of the copy. I think we'll figure it out somehow. Hey, J. Crew, it's producer Josh breaking in here to say it's about 35 minutes into episode 126 from February 28th, 2018. Yes, that was a huge debate about top sheet versus no top sheet. I think that I was the most radically pro-top sheet person on the podcast, in the entire Facebook community. Sorry, that was before your time. Did you did you have feelings about that when you were listening, Pritisha Sar? The top sheet debate? Yeah. Sarah's like, stop trying to get me on this podcast. <laughs> the modern Orthodox community and the top sheet debate. Like, what, what were your feelings at the time? Well, if you don't have a top sheet, what can you put the hole in? Oh, boy. End of discussion. The mic has been dropped. Liel. Yes. Would you take us out? Liel, last letter from the mailbox this week. And and what a letter it is, really. Hi, Unorthodox. Can I get some help with choosing a Hebrew name? I'm about to be a Jew by choice. Hopefully, I can finalize the process whenever our mikvah opens up again. And I am not having any luck with choosing a name. My own name is most definitely not Hebrew-esque, so I'm fine with a complete departure from what I have now. I'm a 40-year-old female, single, independent, and I'm not really into the traditional, quote-unquote, image of Hashem as some vengeful, powerful guy in the sky, so nothing too religious or God-focused. Is there a source that the three of you can point me to in order to find a modern name 
for a modern woman. Thanks in advance, Kerrigan Kelly. So first of all, on behalf of all of us here, welcome home. We're welcome very, home. very happy that you're completing this incredible journey. I'm, I'm going to propose one name that I love, and it's the first thing that jumped into my mind reading this great letter. I'm going to go with Broria. If you haven't brushed up on Talmud, Broria was the wife of Robbie Mayer and is one of the only women noted in the Talmud on her own merit for her incredible wisdom uh, and an incredible learning. She is said to have learned on her own several dozen deep religious questions in one day when others you know, stumble on three or four. And in one really great passage, her husband uh, is kind of struck by rage and, and prays to God to kill uh, a few hoodlums who are running around the neighborhood causing trouble. And she says to him basically the first ever iteration of, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. Have mercy on the sinner and hate the sin. An amazing woman, a powerful woman, an independent woman, a brilliant woman. I vote Bruria. I have a more traditional option, but with a, a modern take. I've always been moved by the story of Rebecca, who basically does all this stuff and has all this agency that women in the Bible typically don't. I mean, if you think about it, she basically like completely changes the line of Jewish descendants. Basically, from the beginning of the, her story to the end, she's always making decisions for herself. And I always was really, really just kind of inspired by that. So I like the idea of taking a very, very what we would think as a traditional biblical name, but understanding and embracing the modern lessons of that. All right. So two excellent options. So if you are paying any attention to the Jewish world, which I bet you are, Kerrigan, as you are becoming one of us, acknowledging that your soul has always been one of us, you've noticed that a lot of young Jewish girls and a lot of non-Jewish girls are being named Noah, N-O-A. I love that. Yeah, but I'm not I'm not going there because I think Noah is, with all due respect to all the Noahs, it's a little played out. I think we've reached peak Noah. This is not the boy's name Noah, which in Hebrew is Noah. But who is Noah? Noah is one of the five daughters of Slophahad in Torah. And they were the first females ever to inherit property. Their father died and they appealed to Moses and said, shouldn't we be allowed to inherit? Shouldn't just be boys who get to inherit? He had no sons and they felt that rather than the money go to, I think it would have been his brother, that it go to... The, the female children. And there was a ruling in their favor. And so these five daughters of Salofahad were allowed to inherit. Now, in the past 20, 30 years, people have been reclaiming this story and they've always been naming their daughters Noah. There are five daughters of Salofahad and only one of them gets a name because it's pretty. And nobody wants to use one of the other four names, which are Mala, Hogla, Milka, or Tirza. I think you need one of those four. I'm going to recommend Tirza, which is somewhat common. Uh, oh, I'm totally team Tirza. But Mala and Hogla and Milka, I, why not go Hogla? Just go read that story. Go into Torah, it's in Numbers, chapter 27, and look up the daughters of Zelophehad and pick one of those five that's not Noah, and you'll be bringing another great feminist story into the naming lexicon of American Jewry. Mazel tov on your journey. We hope that you solve this mikvah situation soon. A lot of there are a lot of people wanting to convert, have to immerse in the mikvah, can't do it under quarantine. Although I'll say we have figured out how to build one in Animal Crossing. So just saying. <laughs> but I want people to to write in with ideas for names for Kerrigan because I think this is a, re a great exercise for everyone, and we can hear more stories like this. Yeah, why why turn to a website when you could have the entire J Crew opining at you? Okay, so listen, J. Crew. I think Stephanie is absolutely right. We need we need a hundred suggestions next week. Maybe we'll put them in a song or something. I don't know. We need a hundred suggestions for what Kerrigan should choose. One hundred and twenty. One hundred and twenty for what she should choose as her Hebrew name. Write to us at unorthodoxatabletmag.com or call us nine one four five seven zero four eight six nine. If you call us, keep the voicemail very very short, or you can email us a voice memo.
You're about to hear my conversation with Adam Zucker and Mohammed Bahi. Adam Zucker is the filmmaker behind the documentary American Muslim, and Mohammed Bahi is one of the activists featured in the film. Mohammed runs the organization Muslims Giving Back, and he tells us all the many ways that he helps his local Muslim community through food banks, volunteer work, and refugee assistance. It was wonderful to talk to them, and I'm excited for you to hear our conversation. I am here with Adam Zucker and Mohammed Bahi. Adam is the director, producer, cinematographer, and editor of the new documentary, American Muslim. And Mohammed is one of the film's breakout stars, I would say. He's an Algerian-American living in Brooklyn, and he runs an organization called Muslims Giving Back. Welcome to you both. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. American Muslim is a really, really interesting documentary about basically being Muslim in the era of Trump, right? The beginning part of the film is about the travel ban, also known as the Muslim ban, and the way Muslim activists were sort of galvanized by the effort to stop it. And then it sort of goes from there. So I guess I want to start with you, Adam. When did you know that this was the film that you were going to make? This film started on November 9th, 2016, the day after the election of Trump. And I have been pretty upset and horrified, as many people I knew were, all throughout the presidential campaign about things being said and targeting of religious minorities and things that I really never expected to happen in my lifetime. And then when Trump was elected, I was just devastated and didn't really know what to do. And it it just really became clear to me that there were other people more on the front line than I was, and specifically Muslim Americans. I am embarrassed to acknowledge that despite being a lifelong New Yorker, I didn't really know any Muslim Americans personally. I mean, I dealt with, but I didn't really know anyone. So I had to go out and meet people. So how did you meet Muhammad? Maybe eight months into my filming, I have been filming with a young woman who was rather remarkable, but it just sort of wasn't working. But she said, I know you're looking to meet more immigrants. There's this guy in Brooklyn who does a lot with immigrant communities, this group Muslims giving back. And I called up and Mohammed answered. And he said, yeah, 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 come on out, come on out. Having spent eight months finding out much more about the Muslim community and all diversity and being in a lot of places in New York, I can't believe I never had run into him because once I had, I saw him everywhere. So Mohammed, when we meet you, you are running a food drive for the local residents of Sunset Park in Brooklyn, where your mosque is based. We also see you doing sort of like a home improvement show for Syrian refugees. Um, We see you do all this amazing work. So I guess, could you tell us a little bit about Muslims giving back and some of the work that you do? and how you got into this? Well, Muslims Giving Back has been in existence for about six years. The name itself, like, says it all. All our projects are charitable. We started with just our signature project till this day, still feeding the homeless every Friday and Saturday night. We've been doing it for the past six years. But from there, we just started adding different things. Before, it was just really just a group, myself and friends. You know, long story short, I started practicing after 9-11, I was, you know, high school student, football team, normal kid. But I saw my friend's perception of me, myself, my faith, my community change after 9-11. And at that point, I literally knew nothing about my religion, nothing at all. But here I am. My name is Muhammad, named after this prophet that I knew nothing about. So my friends would ask me questions. Yeah, is it true? Why you guys are doing this? You guys blowing yourselves up? You're killing us. And I'm sitting there with no answers. So it was kind of embarrassing for me. So I started doing a little research and I started kind of getting attracted to the faith. And I'm like, okay, this is exactly not what the media is portraying it to be or anything. 
But then I turn to my community to say, hey, it's not the average American's fault to have a negative perception on Islam and Muslims based on what they see it on the media because they're not seeing anything on the ground. They're not seeing anything in their communities. They're not seeing anything from their neighbors. They're not seeing anything coming out of mosques from Muslim organizations. So you can't blame them. So I started doing research myself. So going to various different parts of the community and looking for very active, open organizations that could take Islam as a faith and kind of convert it into action. And I really didn't see much. So I volunteered here and there. Then I'm like, you know what? Let me just create my own organization if that's the case, if nobody's doing the work. So some of my friends, you know, at that time we were like in college, we got together. We're like, you know, let's do something simple. You know, feeding human beings is one of the greatest acts in any faith. Let's start by doing that. So we started going to the city, to Manhattan, you know, making meals. We're going to different families. They're helping us cooking meals. And then from there, it just started growing more and more. And then from there, we got a chance to take over our mosque, which has been a big dream of mine about four years ago. And that's when we started implementing like the food pantry program that you see every week. We started doing community breakfasts and we just started adding other projects like the Project Transform, which is my favorite where we're turning not just refugee families, just families in general that are living in very bad, horrific conditions in terms of furniture. Some are even sleeping on the floor where we go into that apartment and literally in one day transform everything, take everything out, clean, paint, fix what we got to fix, bringing new furniture and then bring them back for the revealing. How do you pick the families? We see these sort of a Syrian family. They're all in what appears to be a small Brooklyn apartment. I mean, then you sort of go in and it really is like one of those shows. Um, They leave for the day and you've had donations to buy new furniture and really decorate. And how do you do that? It's just through the word of mouth from our community members. And we did a couple of non-Muslims as well, because in our culture, It's like a big no-no to go and beg, right? To tell people the condition you're living in. You're supposed to be patient. You're supposed to humble yourself that this is a test from God. So if you're sleeping on the floor, if you're sleeping in a bad condition, if you're in a very tough financial situation, you're supposed to just have patience and toughen it out and so forth. So a lot, majority of families will not openly go to people and be like, hey, you know, we're sleeping on the floor. They'll never have that spirit to come out and say, hey, listen, I need help. It doesn't happen. They'll just say, oh, I'm good, I'm good, you know, praise to God, I'm good. So they'll never say the truth, but it always comes out from other family members. They'll say, hey, I visited this person, I visited my neighbor, and they are in a very bad shape. So then what we do is we reach out to that family. We tell them, hey, listen, we heard that you guys are this way. And, you know, we try to make them comfortable. A lot of the families, we don't record, we don't share the information. But if they want to, it's up to them. And trying to gain that trust, show them who we are, that we're here as volunteers. You know, we're not here as a gimmick. We're not here to try to profit off of them. And that's how most of the uh, families we came across. And we've done over probably 40 in the past, like, three years when we started this project. That's amazing. But I have to say that my favorite part is watching your wife yell at you about where you're hanging things. Each project, it's a battle because, you know, she has a certain taste Then I have a certain vision of how the apartment is. And it's just like a clash of civilization the whole time. Like, no, this color, this, that. I don't think you've seen all of it. It's worse when we're shopping, actually, for the furniture and the colors. And oh, it's like a whole week process of fighting back and forth. It's just so funny because sort of like one of the themes of the documentary is just, you know, humanizing American Muslims. And there is like truly nothing more universal than just like, why are you hanging that there? There's like, you can't do it right there because of what's right over there. (laughs) You know, I have to say, and this is truly coming from a place of privilege, but watch. Watching the film, I was sort of like, 
oh yeah, the Muslim ban. Like it feels like it was so long ago. So much insane stuff has happened since then, but it really stopped me in my tracks. The fact that like this is something that was something really, really deeply foundationally important to a lot of people. And and so there's sort of like two poles, right? Like everyone in the film talks about 9-11, right? And how it either impacted their own identity as, as a Muslim in America, or it, like you say, you know, sort of galvanized you to become more just aware of your faith. And then the second point, because of where the film is located in time, is the Muslim ban. And so I guess I wonder, you know, are there little kids who know the Muslim ban who don't know 9-11 necessarily in their stories? You know, I live downtown Manhattan. I mean, obviously, 9-11 was 18 years ago. 19 years ago it was very, very impactful. I lived less than a mile from the World Trade Center site. But it, living in New York City, I don't think I realized the direct visceral impact it might have had in Muslim American communities, nor did I know the relationship between the pushback after 9-11 or lack thereof and the different kind of pushback now after the second apocalypse, the election of Trump. And even someone like Abir Kawas in the film, who is, I think, 26 years old, which means she would have been a young girl at that time, seven, eight years old. She, too, went to school after 9-11. And the teacher said, can you explain to your other schoolmates why are Muslims terrorists? So, That connection between those two events just seemed really salient and continues to inform. I'll say for kids maybe 10, 11, 12 years old, we've definitely spoken about it, the ban and how it affected them, because all of them got affected somehow or some way or another. Their grandmother was stuck back home, their uncle, their aunt, their niece, their mother, their father. But I think at that point for them, it's mostly why is this happening? I don't think they know the severity of 9-11 as the foundation of Islamophobia in this country. It's just for them, they just don't understand. I feel like they grew up in a, I guess you would say almost like a peaceful time. A lot of them were born, I'll say 2008, 2009. So the Iraq war at that time was kind of, you know, gone. The war in Afghanistan is fading away. So I'll say I call it the peaceful time for the Muslim community. So when the whole ban happened, they just didn't understand, like, why is this going on? And I told them, you know, there was a very, you know, tragic event that happened way before you were born. And this kind of laid down the foundation. It kind of gave a name to what Islam is in America, to who Muslims are in America. And I always use 9-11 as an example, because for me, it's the biggest motivating factor, to be honest, because 9-11 made the word Muslim synonymous to terrorist. So I would tell my community, it's really our role to reverse that image, right? To reverse that definition. And the only way to do that is really to be public and show people what our faith is through action. But, you know, the really telling moment is, you know, the protests against the ban at JFK, right? There are tons of people outside. They weren't all Muslim, right? Like this was the really big shift. Everyone sort of suddenly was able to say, this is wrong. And I forget who it is in the film who basically says, you know, for the first half of her life, she had to apologize for terrorist acts. And there was no way to sort of say, no, no one else has to do this. Why do we have to do this? And now I think there's a shift into, at least in the film, like this sense of pride and activism and not apologetics. And I think that that is such an important shift. I guess I'm curious, Mohammed, is that something that you've noticed in your life? You know, you talk about being on the football team and you were called Mo and then everyone suddenly is calling you Mohammed, like to remind you that that's your name. I mean, how do you chart that trajectory? Literally within the next day, I saw a huge shift, a difference in my life. And a lot of my friends ended up joining the Marines, the Navy, just because of 9-11, straight out of high school. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, wow, I'm like, this can't be real. This is not really my religion is. But then again, I couldn't explain it at all because I wasn't a practicing Muslim. But at that time, absolutely, I was, you know, apologizing again and again. And I saw it was not going anywhere. 
I could tell them all I want that no, Islam means peace, Islam means that. And they'll be like, no, your religion says this, your religion says that. And I keep condemning, but they keep seeing those images, right? They're seeing those video footages and they're seeing people saying, we're going to kill, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. It's hard to compete against that. And that's when I knew that, you know what? Apologizing is not getting us anywhere. And that's when I started thinking, I'm like, why am I apologizing for something that I have nothing part of? So that's when I started developing this mentality that, you know what? No, when you apologize for something, you are associating yourself with that thing. So for me, I just said, you know what? Let me just literally excommunicate this group or divorce it, whatever. And my apology is going to turn into more of a form of action, more of a form of education and really showing people what, you know, my true faith is. Could you tell us a little bit about the community that you serve and the variety of countries that all of these Muslim immigrants have come from? First of all, Adam, I think, did an amazing job showing the diversity in that crew. I mean, from Yemen, Indonesian, Bengali, Pakistani, Egyptian, Algerian, you name it. And that's really how the Muslim community is. 99.9% of all our sermons, lectures, programs are all in English, right? So we're just attracting a younger generation. Most other mosques will have a cultural label, like this is a Pakistani mosque, this is an Egyptian mosque, this is an Indonesian and, you know, Bengali. So that language is kind of heavily influenced on that mosque. So most of their sermons would be in their own language, which kind of like shuns a lot of other people to attend because they're not going to understand anything what they're saying. The closest mosque when I grew up in Queens was all Bengali community. So I would sit there in a Bengali mosque just, you know, for one hour, just listening to someone speaking a Bangla. I had no idea what this guy was talking about. Uh, but in terms of our community, it is heavily mixed from, you know, you have traditional Arabs from Yemen, Palestine, uh, Egypt, Syria, Morocco. And then you have the subcontinent from India, Pakistan, from Bangladesh. Then you have almost more towards the Eastern European or Western from Albanians, Uzbekistan, Bosnia. Very, very mixed community that we have because we, I guess we make English as our universal tool to teach people our faith. Another thing that obviously spoke to me in this film is the, the interfaith work that a lot of the leaders in the film talk about doing. We have Imam Shamsi Ali, who I actually knew when he was part of the Islamic Cultural Center up on the Upper East Side. Now he's somewhere else, but he he sort of talks about working with Jewish leaders and seeing that as an important thing. And then also so, sort of the pushback that he gets, that someone says you spend more time in synagogue than you do in mosques. And I know that he's obviously not here on the show, but Adam, could you speak to a little bit about why you wanted to focus on the importance of interfaith work in this film? I didn't set out to make a film about interfaith, and it presented itself to me, both initially speaking to Shamsi Ali, speaking to Debbie Almentazer, and they're not sole examples as Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum and CBST in Manhattan. There are so many examples of strong interfaith alliance going on right now between Jews and Muslims. And actually what I usually tell people is that it's sort of a golden age of Muslim-Jewish cooperation and alliance. When I went in the Shamsi to Temple Emmanuel, Rabbi Davidson said you should come to one of our youth groups. Shamsi every year brings a group of Indonesian high school students to America for a kind of semester abroad, and they have six or eight weeks of meetings and study, what have you. And so those kids came to Temple Emmanuel with the post-Benay environment the kids. So we're talking about 16, 15-year-olds. And the Jewish kids were asked to share a ritual object that meant something to them. And so a girl would be talking about the talit, which had been given to her by her grandfather, which she used at her bat mitzvah. And one of the young folks from Indonesia would talk about the use of a prayer shawl. And it was really beautiful. I mean, the funny thing is, I think someone in the film says there's no two religions who are more similar. Listening to it, if I sort of like turned away from the screen, it would forget that what I was watching was a Muslim family or a Muslim service, because like there is a familiarity there. I do a lot of interfaith screenings. 
whether it's at universities or at faith houses, bringing mosques and synagogues together or bringing Muslim student associations and Hillel groups together and showing the film to them. And I find it's a really good vehicle to elicit conversation and to kind of enhance understanding a little bit. Where can our listeners watch American Muslim? The film is distributed by Video Project in San Francisco and sometime in the next year, We will have it on Amazon and iTunes, but there's a kind of lag period while it's still being purchased and utilized in schools and universities and libraries, which is kind of what their business is. So I hate to have to say you can't see it yet, but I had a very robust screening schedule, which of course has been completely aborted. I am just myself now trying to shift over into the virtual world. And I figured since what I do is community screenings, I'm going to try to do that within communities. But American Muslim, by the end of the year, will be available on Amazon and iTunes. And... Until then, you can check the website, www.americanmuslimfilm.com, which has information of where it's being seen. And, you know, as an independent filmmaker, it's definitely a brave new world for all of us. Mohammed, how can people who are listening, how can they get involved with Muslims giving back? How can they help out these refurbishments of refugee apartments here in New York City? What can they do? I mean, we're very, I guess, heavily involved in social media in terms of our Facebook page, Muslims Giving Back, and Instagram as well. But definitely, we always tell people just the best way really to get involved is just to come in person, right? Because I feel, to be honest, charity is really the best way of bringing people together, right? Because the environment is beautiful, right? Everyone is doing a good deed. Everyone is helping. So there is really no negativity, nothing toxic in that space. It's just people coming together. Then after that, you just feel like you accomplished something as a team. So I always urge people from different backgrounds, different faiths, just, you know, just join us, you know, come out to the city, Fridays and Saturday nights, bring family members, you know, bring snacks, fruits, whatever. Join us on the line and let's feed 100 or 200 people. And I think really doing that definitely brings people together, humbles us each other and really exposes us to beyond just, you know, labels. Uh, you are this type of person. You are this type of person. Our motto in Muslims Giving Back is one creator, one planet, one family. So I always tell people that. I'm like, you know, maybe there's different gods around the world, different religions, but what created you created me. There's only one creator. We always say we're one family. We all came from Adam and Eve. We're all human beings. And, you know, we're all one planet. We're all living in the same space. So we have no choice but really to understand and work together. So definitely I would say to just follow us on our page and to see more of the amazing work that we do. And definitely they could either sponsor a meal, sponsor some of the projects we do, or just, you know, join us in person. We look forward to joining you in person once this is all over. Adam Zucker, Mohammed Bahi, the film is American Muslim. Thank you for being here. Ramadan Mubarak. It's just a real treat to talk to you. Ramadan Karim. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. You can check out the documentary at AmericanMuslimFilm.com and you can learn more about Muslims giving back at MuslimGivingBack.com. Mazel tovs. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov? I have a mazel tov for friend of the show, Judy Gold. Uh, her son, the six foot eight Ben Callahan Gold, uh, is heading to Tulane. He's going to play basketball, uh, which is very exciting. Happy for Judy and the fam. And my mazel tov is to friend and neighbor, Mashpucha, really, Bela Ridke. She's my daughter Rebecca's 
friend and peer. I used to babysit for both of them one morning a week. So Bella's mom, Naomi, would take the two of them one morning a week, and I would take the two of them one morning a week. And they've been friends forever and ever. And Bella had her Zoom bat mitzvah two weeks ago. And uh, at one point, I left my house where I was watching the whole thing on Zoom, ran across the street and spied on them from the adjacent backyard where they had a very physically distanced group of loved ones uh, watching the bat mitzvah uh, in the backyard. And I spied and tried to wave and get their attention. It was a very exciting day. So uh, to Bela Ridke, Mazel Tov on uh, celebrating becoming a bat mitzvah. Bela Ridke, let's add that to Kerrigan's list. Kerrigan's list sounds like a, some sort of Holocaust movie. <laughs> no, it's a combination right. of Angie's list or a consumer and advocacy Sarah's group. Key. Yeah, it's right. Okay. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. If you really like using bit.ly, you can go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt where you will find the latest in unorthodox shirts, mugs, onesies, and other swag. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sara Fredman-Ader. Our assistant editor is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Steve Nathan, known as Rabbi Steve of Lehigh University Hillel. We come to you from Argo Studios, which has been treating quarantine as some much-needed me time. Shalom, friends. First mention of Top Sheets in the mailbox is March 1st, 2018. It was during my time, so it's between episodes 121 and 126. I'm pretty sure it wasn't in the Jim Martin one that it came up, so it's somewhere between 122 and 126. One of you has to go check the banter <laughs> and figure not, out which one not, it is. Shut up! <laughs> <laughs> Josh, your birthday's over. Just do it. <laughs> no, I'm not doing it, but you tell me and I'll fix it. <laughs> Somebody has to go listen to the banter on those four episodes. Can that be the outro?